wait, boys, wait. You're making a big mistake. You made the mistake. No, no, you gotta listen to me. I thought you boys understood. It's business. That, that's all it is. You still don't get it, do you, boys? There ain't no countries anymore. No more good guys. They're running the whole show. They own everything, the whole goddamn planet. They can do whatever they want. What's wrong with having it good for a change? Now, they're gonna let us have it good if we just help them. They're gonna leave us alone. Let us make some money. You can have a little taste of that good life, too. Now, I know you want it. Hell, everybody does. You do it to your own kind. What's the threat? We all sell out every day. Might as well be on the winning team. That was Peter Jason explaining how the world works. Now it's been secretly hypnotised by consumerist aliens in cult sci-fi satire, They Live, directed by John Carpenter. Cult and capitalism form two halves of our show this week, as we review black comedy thriller, I Care A Lot, and schlocky horror comedy, Willy's Wonderland. We don't know what we're doing, we're just talking about films, and films are better than people. I'm Sam. And I'm Lawrence. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. So, the first thing we're reviewing this week is I Care A Lot, which you can view right now on Amazon Prime, and Sam's going to tell you the plot. Marla runs a profitable business taking advantage of the elderly. A doctor will inform Marla of geriatric people who are showing signs that they are unable to look after themselves. Marla appoints herself their legal guardian for a court of law. She then moves these OAPs into her care home, sells their house and possessions, and charges herself commission. However, when she does this to the mother of a mysterious drug trafficker played by Peter Dinklage, things turn nasty. Or, as a haiku, capitalism. Cruel, ruthless, predatory. Criminality. Oh. Mm. I was capturing the themes there rather than the actual plot. I was taking a more kind of poetic, uh, yeah, like an, ab- an abstract one. Yeah, did I, thought, this time. I, I thought it was very dark in tone, actually. Mm. Exactly. Well, much like the film. Yeah, maybe yeah. you could have got that published. I could. Yeah, I didn't. There's, there's um, very little money in film criticism. These days, Sam, uh, even less money in haikus. In haikus about film criticism. <laughs> haikus about film criticism as well. There's even less money in that. So, uh, uh, no, I think it's strictly for the love of the game, the game of writing poetry. And here's a clip. Good morning, Miss Peterson. I'm sorry to disturb you so early. The court has ruled that you require assistance in taking care of yourself. <laughs> I'm fine. I'm afraid it's not up to you to decide. The court has appointed me to be your legal guardian. What? You have to come with me. And remember, I'm here to help. My name is Marla Grayson. Jennifer Peterson, she's off limits. She has very powerful friends who can make life uncomfortable for you. How uncomfortable are we talking? I don't like you. You only just met me. There's two types of people in this world. Predators and prey. So, not your typical day job then. Being a legal guardian. Being a guardian, yeah. And, uh, uh, moving perfectly healthy people into care homes. And then rinsing their bank accounts. Ruining their lives. And the yeah. lives of their families as well. Yeah. I, I think just, just, just work at McDonald's. I think that's fine. <laughs> I think. Uh, like, it's slightly less evil. I still have to work for a big, evil, soulless corporation. But, you know, it's just feeding obesity rather than exploiting the old people. But actually, Jay Blakeson, the director and writer of this film, what he does really well is he explains that concept in the opening of the film. Mm. I can I could see another film where it might take a bit too long to get used to the idea of what a legal guardian is. And we understand very quickly how powerful Marla is yeah. and how she works the system to make a lot of money through elderly people. In the opening scene, we get... Uh, it, obviously, we've told you about sort of the main narrative thread... But actually, there's a case which sort of does come back in the latter part of the film, 
where she's done this really horrible thing to another family. She's moved the mother of this guy, that, and this guy's taken her to court. He's trying yep. to win back the legal guardianship, and so he's able to have some sort of control over his mother's life. But he can't do it, because because Marla has got the system wired, really. She can just do whatever she wants to this woman. She's taken all the money, she's taken all the possessions, and, and yeah, this poor son, he... He can't fight her at all. We're making it sound very grim, but it is meant to be a comedy. I'll beat like a very uh, black comedy, but it uh, is is definitely comedy and it's definitely, it's a satire. It's a satire about the entire system. Although this kind of thing does actually exist, I did a little bit of research and the archetype for Marla was actually exposed in a, a New York Times article and she's now serving 15 to... 40 years in prison, thankfully. That's like, that's like a happy ending in real life. Yeah. In the District of Columbia between 1990 and 2010, Guardian stole $5.4 million in assets from their wards in that period. God, that's crazy. Yeah, and there have been, they've been cases like this in Texas as well. But it's, yeah, it's really nasty. But it is about the system. The film is about the system, and it's a, it is a slightly more fantastical uh, version of a Guardian. And it's a, it's a character study of Marla, this perfectly ruthless shark who has a, a completely self-interested philosophy and is utterly brilliant at squeezing their money out of people using this very nasty means. But she is very cool, very confident, very sexy as she does this as well. The, the best thing about this was the two of the leads, really, like Rosamund Pike, is just born to play a character like this. Like, she is so fearless, and, and she perfectly delivers every line in such a brutal and confident manner. She is equal parts uh, absolutely terrifying, and yet you, you're, you're absolutely captivated by her watching this. Uh, she actually just won a Golden Globe for this performance, and I, I think it's absolutely deserved. I mean, I think she's wonderful at playing roles like this. Yeah, she's formidable. And I think it's the style and aesthetic too, really. There's like a sleekness and a shine to her yeah. that, that brings out this almost like robotic look and feel to her character. Because, yeah, I mean, what you were saying essentially about how she uses her understanding of law to win and to, to win at any cost, really. Sort of one of her decrees is beat me in a court. This is what she says to the drug trafficker played by Peter Dinglage at one point because, you know, it gets to the stage where he's trying to intimidate her through violence. And she says to him, well, the only way that you can ever truly take advantage of me, the only way that you can actually try and win your mother back is by beating me in a court. And it's kind of part of her philosophy that she plays by the rules of the system, but takes them to the extreme of no moral boundaries. Because I guess this is what the film's trying to play with. It's like, these are people who have found a way to make money and basically like, yeah, treat people as commodities. And they just don't feel anything about it. They have no morals, they have no ethics. They're just completely soulless. And I guess that's kind of a weakness and a strength within the film because it's like, why would you want to watch a whole film about people who just don't care about what they do? They only care about making money and yeah, taking advantage of the, the elderly and the vulnerable. That is the main thing that I kind of pulled out of this, of this film. I think when I was watching it and initially right after it, I found this a, a really difficult watch. And I, I usually pride myself on not being squeamish, but I, I think I found something very disturbing about the nature of what Marla does. Even though it, it is something that does go on, but I think that this is a more hyper-real version of what actually goes on. I found it very disturbing. I found that there was just something about it where I, I, I almost couldn't quite see the lighter side of it. I found... What she does so unlikable that I and I found her and everyone in it so unlikable that I found it difficult to separate that from the watching of the film. But that's the whole point of the film. After like a couple of sleeps, I've warmed up to it a lot more because that is the whole point of the film. The whole point is that you're watching these quite ruthless, brutal people do whatever they need to do. To, to climb the food chain and get to the top. And, and that is not just Marla herself, but also the drug trafficker played by Peter Dinklage. And there is this comparison between the two. And ultimately, that's what the message really is at the centre of the film, that Marla and the drug trafficker are reflections of the system we live in. That actually, when you get to a certain level, the way that certain industries 
exploit people and exploit the system, uh, they're no different than criminals. They work in the grey areas, but there's not that much difference between the way that a Mexican cartel functions and the way that some big billion-dollar corporations function as well. It's just that they can usually get away with it. And ultimately, the film is a satire on capitalism. It's saying that the system ultimately rewards heartlessness, cruelty, and ruthlessness, and that the more that you aspire to be that, however kind of immoral that is, the, the, the more you're going to get ahead. Yeah, and maybe the age we live in with the uh, you know the Trumpian politics of, uh, of recent years. Yes. But there's a great juxtaposition in the film because, yeah, Peter Dinklage's gangster is a drug trafficker, but he's also a human trafficker. Yes. And it's kind of a little bit of what <laughs> Marla's doing as well. Yeah, it is. is. You know, there's a really like horrible scene where actually he's looking at the... We never see it as the audience, but he's looking at the people that he's been trafficking and making money out of them. And Marla is essentially trafficking a different group of people. Exactly. A different subset of people. And yeah, that's pretty, pretty terrifying. But you never have to like your protagonist. No, certainly not. And obviously you usually hate the antagonist within a film. But at least when bad stuff happens to the both of them, you don't really mind. <laughs> I think, again, like the more I think about it, the more that I come away from it, the more that my immediate revulsion to this character makes me think, like, well, the, the, the film's really even better for it, because that just shows how effective it is. I want to actually say, as we're, we're talking about Peter Dinklage, it is always good to see him. In, in a really good role like this. He, he can convey so much like menace and so much rage and, and, and power, but there's still a real subtlety. He's so good at conveying emotions and like really drawing your attention on, on the screen to him. Because I haven't seen him in very much since Game of Thrones that's that noteworthy. But this is exactly the kind of role that he's absolutely great in. And I think the double team of, of them, even though I, I think... Rosamund Pike is the protagonist and does stand out. The double team of that them is so watchable and so brilliant. Yeah, he's just so refined in the film, and there is all this like really pent up aggression that he cleverly releases very, very slowly over the film. I think with a lot of mafia or gangster types, it's all the cliche to you know show your aggression very early on and show a lot of machismo. But with Peter Dinklage, he's all very virile, but he slowly lets that out over the course of the film and it just shows you what a scary character he is. He is. I think that the way that the the plot unfolds as well, it's got that intelligent, uh, meticulous ruthlessness a la Breaking Bad. I mean, I don't want to do too many comparisons to a, a TV show, but the way that the characters are so methodical, but the things that they do are, are completely believable and, and so clever and just shows the predatory nature of themselves. That's a really entertaining thing to watch because it's horrifying, but utterly believable. Yeah. And that's what you got out of like Breaking Bad. And there's a similar kind of pattern in I Care A Lot and, and it's really entertaining. And it just fits with the whole twisted nature of the film. This, this real like black comedy satire that's just great yeah in the opening line Marla embodies a predator preying on the weak yeah but her business targets some of the most vulnerable in society and turns them into profit for herself so she sort of just sees people as a way of making money and there are a few shots of her exercising or going to the gym Mm. and it's almost like she's warming up for a boxing match yeah. She's got this fight, almost like she's ready to pounce at any time yeah she is like that I don't know who I'm going to irritate more with this but I think it's really great to see this kind of character embodied by a a female actor. I think that probably 10 years ago, they probably wouldn't have cast a a female actor doing something like this, but it just shows you we've come far that you've got someone like Rosamund Pike who is absolutely born to play something like this and should be able to play something like this and she has the opportunity to play something like this. I don't know if I'd go as far to say that she's a A feminist. (laughs) It's really, it's really, really hard to know whether I would call this a feminist or not because she's utterly evil. But yet at the same time, I think there is something about her. Well, yeah, there's a really good line in it where she says, you know how many times I've been threatened by a man? Hundreds. Yeah. And it's kind of this idea. It's like, yeah, men try and take me on and, and they can't. And she brings other women into the racket with her. Yeah. You know, there's the doctor, there's her girlfriend as well. And they're kind of all part of this group making making money, in this, obviously in this really perverse way. Yes. She's not using her femininity as a weapon, but she's almost just fully aware of the way that men 
will treat her for doing this and the way that men will use their masculinity to try and impose something on her and she can absorb that energy and give it right the fuck back that's not in a <laughs> i mean not in a good way she's she's evil whatever you know whatever gender whatever sexuality she is she's a <laughs> she's a nasty piece of work but I think I would leave the question of whether or not she's feminist to uh, to a different voice, maybe. But she, there is something distinctively female about her that is quite interesting. No, I think she's taken on the patriarchy. And there's a really great scene. But I don't want to lionise her. I don't want to make it seem like she's a kind of hero for doing this. Well, she's a predator, so you can lionise her. When she takes on the lawyer that the, this gangster buys. They start talking in this two shot and it does really feel like there's this animosity between the two of them. When he walks into the room, it feels like that he's kind of got the power. He's like, well, I'm a lawyer, you know, I'm a man, I'm represented to someone with a huge amount of sway. And, and the way Marla beats him down, the way that Marla controls that situation, yeah. is really, really great. And it's her imposing yeah, her influence and her intelligence into that situation. Dean. I have a legal duty. Jennifer Peterson is in need of my protection. How can I just abandon her? Are you saying no? I'm saying no. I'm saying no. Thank you. In the days to come, you'll replay this conversation in your head over and over, and you're gonna wish you played it differently. Right now, look at what you have, a thriving business, employees, Nice face, unbroken bones, a life. When this is through, you're not gonna have any of those things. Last chance. Goodbye, Dean. Curtis will validate your parking on the way out. I thought this was a difficult watch at first, but I would really recommend this to people if they like a really good vicious, twisted thriller, which is satirising the world we live in and gleefully makes this very horrible but very watchable world. Once I got past that fact that no one in it is likeable and that you really are finding it difficult to cheer for anyone, it's a really wonderful, twisted little thriller with two absolutely brilliant performances right at the centre of it. It's a really good watch if you like that kind of thing. Yeah, I was actually expecting something completely different, which sort of helped my enjoyment of the film. It is incredibly dark, and the concept around guardianship is really, really suffocating, especially in the first few scenes where you see this poor woman being taken to the cleaners, and she loses everything. She loses her autonomy, and she loses her possessions that she's had all her life. That's just a really horrible moment. And actually, like I think one of the best bits is when her phone gets taken away from her, because everyone can relate to that a little bit, that your phone is one of your power sources when that leaves you. So the whole opening is really, really well executed. It's been a huge controversy, or I wouldn't say a huge controversy, but there's been a lot of debate over the past decade with it in the United States. So this sort of can be categorised as an issues film, but it leans more towards a thriller due to the presence of Peter Dinklage's mobster. Mm -hmm. I think what the director, Jay Blakespin, really is interested in is the moral maze around capitalism and society we live in and how it views people as commodities. It could have ended maybe with a bolder and more satirical note, but this is still really clever, gripping, and yeah, subverts many character archetypes and I think leaves you questioning the system. Yeah. How can people this evil make so much money from essentially, yeah, ruining people's lives? Yeah, see the see pretty much the the system we've been living in for the past few centuries yeah yeah maybe that is pretty naive of me but uh, yeah (laughs) right it made me more interested in the issue behind the film yeah i think any thriller that ostensibly wants to entertain you but as well teaches you something i think is really is really really good yeah i'm staying away from care homes they look like weird places Makes me want to, like, sort out my will. But, uh, I mean, y- you wouldn't take me to the cleaners if I just made you my guardian, would you? You wouldn't, like, rinse me for everything I got? It means I could do this podcast on my own. So. <laughs> I don't lose. I won't lose. I'm never letting you go. Oh, you're in trouble now. Fucking lioness.
you liked I Care a lot, then Joy from 2015 similarly explores the nefarious side of business, but also how you can escape a futile existence through entrepreneurial savvy. Joy stars Jennifer Lawrence in the titular role alongside Bradley Cooper, Robert De Niro, Edgar Ramirez and Isabella Rossellini. Directed and written by David O. Russell, this film came as part of a run that had garnered him huge critical success. Prior to Joy, his works such as The Fighter, Silver Linings Playbook and American Hustle had all been heavily nominated for awards in the years they'd been released. The story. Joy is living with her dysfunctional family when she invents an alternative to the conventional mob. A self-ringing, plastic function means domestic housewives no longer have to get their hands wet. Manufacturing this product means gaining financial backing and she receives it from her father's new girlfriend. We then go through the highs and lows of Joy's bizarre journey into commerce as she deals with patents, marketing and multiple lawsuits. I know what you're thinking, this sounds fucking boring. (laughs) And stripped down like that, it probably would have been. But there is a style, energy and intensity from this film that only someone like Jennifer Lawrence and the director David Russell can bring. As you grow up and come into the world that has all sorts of things in it, money, crime, betrayal, seems like you're shaking us down. You can pay more. I can't, and I won't. You realize that the only thing you're gonna have is what you make. You are in a room, and there is a gun on the table. I want my life to be. The only other person in the room is an adversary in commerce. Only one of you can prevail. Do you pick up the gun, Joy? I pick up the gun. Listen to me. Never speak on my behalf about my business again. Like I care a lot, our protagonist in Joy Takes No Prisoners is the master of her own destiny and is not only competing against her business rivals, but the patriarchy too. Joy is more of an underdog, however, and while throughout I care a lot, you're questioning how far you identify with Marla's ambitions, you're willing Joy to survive because of the adversity surrounding her. There's her useless ex-husband, mentally ill mother, and difficult father to deal with before she even tries to get her miracle mop into the shells. It makes Marla's war with organised crime look easy. Perhaps there's a problem with how each film looks at capitalism. Jay Blakeson is using the immoral characters in our care a lot to make a point about the dangers of the free market, while David O. Russell wants to show the brutality of the system, but also how it offers freedom as well. Regardless of that theme, I think both films look at two women looking for salvation in seemingly perilous scenarios and manage this through determination, resolve, and a cunning plan. I can sort of see why you've picked that, but I, I'll be honest, it's one of the stranger choices that you've had for If You Like This, because I think they've got two such starkly different perspectives on the system that they live in. That comparison between them is very interesting. But do you think that that thing about these women fighting for their own like independence and succeeding in this system, that overrides each one's viewpoint? Because one film very much sees capitalism as corrupt and an oppressor, and another one sees capitalism as quite fair, uh, if not a little bit screwy, and ultimately a liberator. Yeah, and one that's quite benevolent. Yes. Because I think at the end of... Yeah, she's, she, you got this end sequence where she's kind of like TV goddess, uh, almost like giving out money to other women to make their ideas come true. Exactly, yeah. Helping other people to manufacture their inventions and actually giving people a, a foot up, really, which is not always what capitalism does, really. No. But, yeah, I see what you mean. I think, as I've said, there, there are kind of two different views and, and I think you can always, like, debate the positives and, well... Very few positive. <laughs> well, but I think, I think both films, they... I mean, in Joy, we see more of the struggle. I don't think we ever see Marla in I Care A Lot create this idea or create this business and, and break through that ceiling into a position where she makes money. I mean, if anything, towards the end of the film, we see her become even more successful, really. So, yeah, I guess maybe it's about two women at different stages of their own business. If you liked the satire, the whole thing with how ruthless she is in the system, and I care a lot, do you think people are going to view this, which is a kind of love letter to American capitalism? People are not going to get the same thing out of this. No, but I think if you liked Marla... Because, I mean, Marla's kind of like a very questionable character, but... 
I'm sure there'll be a lot of people saying she's spotted a gap in the market. Good for her. And I could definitely see a lot of people fantasising about being someone like Marla. Definitely, I think. Which is not uncommon. Unpleasant characters throughout movie history, usually gangsters, you know, like Scarface, form a, a very important part of people's fantasy lives. Yeah, and I think we had a bit of debate before this. And if you like this, I mean, we don't necessarily have to like the films to recommend it to other people. No. And I think this is this is what it's like with Joy. I think no, I, I, I certainly don't. I care like a lot. Joy. It's an incredibly difficult film to find examples that are similar to it. To be honest, even though I think Joy's almost the closest companion that we can get to a film about Carolot, which is in a way giving more plaudits to I care a lot. This is a film that is very very unique. Yes, but I think Joy is about another woman who's fighting for all she's got. And yeah, I think there are plenty of moments in Joy where you think it's over for her. You think the the dream has died, but. Actually, she manages to rescue herself and, and make a success. I think that's actually, yeah, heartwarming in a way. But it's a strange film. It's, it's all over the place. But it really, I mean, I don't like Joy. I think it's a weird story to want to make a film about. For the record, we, I'm not going to go off on a tangent about my own political viewpoint. I'm on the left, but I consider myself a centrist. And I do believe in capitalism, to be perfectly honest, even though I'm pretty critical of, of certain elements of the system. Sometimes when you're pitching... The idea that capitalism is this benevolent thing, I do find that a little difficult to swallow. And like I say, it's a weird story to make about this person. It's it's really all over the place. But it is entertaining. That's important. Uh, I think it's like it's a film. I, I don't know if it is, but, but it's it okay. You know, but it is fast paced. There's like plenty of dialogue that they bounce off each other. Really, it's not a film that's kind of like slowly, methodically showing you the story. I think the reason why it works is because. Every scene has this edge and intensity to it. And he decides to shoot this very, very quickly with a fast-paced editing style. If you're going to make a film about an invention and it's sort of slowly coming to fruition, then you have to do it in a way that's going to bring your audience along with you. And I think Joy, in that way, is a success, while in other ways, maybe it doesn't work as well. I think you're making the argument even more now, maybe unwittingly, that I Care A Lot is a feminist film. Because I think for you in, in picking Joy as a comparison piece, it was that important element about it being a woman kind of struggling against and succeeding within a capitalist system and against a, a patriarchy, obviously in both of them. And if you didn't like it, I think you should watch Office Space from 1999. Ruthless, merciless success, bleeding the system dry and climbing to the top of the food chain. It's hard to do that when you've got eight different bosses telling you to put the right cover sheet on your TPS report. Peter is stuck in a modern nightmare. He's at a soulless corporate job that's sucking every bit of happiness from him, but after a trip to a hypnotist to try and get out of his funk works a little too well, he takes a more relaxed view to his role in corporate America. It should get him fired, but it doesn't. Quite the opposite, he succeeds. So he hatches a scheme with his fellow co-workers to exploit the company and try to get rich quick. I don't like my job, and I don't think I'm going to go anymore. I'm thinking now it might be more fun to just get fired. And I've always wondered what that would take. Well, it looks like you've been missing quite a bit of work lately. Well, I wouldn't say I've been missing it, Bob. (laughs) (laughs) That's just a straight shooter with upper management written all over him. You haven't been showing up, and you get to keep your job. Actually, I'm being promoted. Thank you, Bob. This is a... It suck! They're gonna throw you out on the street so that Bill Lumberg's stock will go up. Ooh, it's completely unfair. Inatech deserves to go down. We're just the guys to do it. Tell me about that virus you're always talking about. The one that could rip off the company for a bunch of money. I'm not going to do anything illegal, Peter. Illegal? Samir, this is America. Office Space is most fondly remembered for capturing a zeitgeist in post-industrial America. People were no longer struggling on the line, but with a bureaucratic, soulless existence in cubicles sitting inside giant grey office buildings. Little irritations repeated over and over, driving everyone insane. Clueless higher-ups and an inane day-to-day workload that is pointless as it was monotonous. The strength of something like office space is we all have to work in those jobs sometimes. Some are probably working them right now. Not you, of course, dear listener. You're just here until the band takes off. Although modern workplaces try to avoid this late 20th century image of office life, everyone can relate to something in office space. I Care A Lot is about the zero-sum game of ruthless capitalism. If you found that unrelatable or too dark, but still want to find something that satirises the system, then come find the doughy quagmire at the other end of capitalism. 
The place where the unsuccessful and the unambitious toil for unseen masters who are not really their biggest concern next to what PC load letter actually means. The plot rides a good line between silly and straight, whereas later offerings about the plight of the meaningless office jobs can claim to be a bit more grounded in reality, the more cartoonish elements keep the film bouncy and light, so it's an easy watch. If you don't want to be depressed by the monsters at the top, and you'd rather see a comedy about capitalism from the point of view of the average, failing, hopeless schmuck, then Office Space is the one for you. I haven't seen Office Space. Oh, have you not? No. It looks like a really good comedy. I think Mike Judge, the writer and director of Office Space, I think he's got a, a certain following. I think he's made films uh, apart from Office Space, but mm-hmm. he's probably more known for his TV work. But yeah, I think Office Space sounds like a like a real success, and yeah, it's just one that, that I have to get around to watching. As I suggested, like I mean, it's a little bit dated, and it never quite took off in the UK as much as it did in the USA. It certainly got its pockets. I've met people that really, really love Office Space, but in the UK we had that culture like a little bit later. We had it, but it was in a different, much more quintessentially British way. With The Office. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, yeah. Like, well, that's the thing. With the the, the mean, truth is, it is we don't The want Office. To di- yeah, we don't, I don't want to digress too much, but part of the reason I think people said the success of The Office, the UK office, the British sitcom, took off in, in around 2001, or what Ricky Gervais and Steve Merchant, the creators of The Office, said, was that it was a zeitgeist comedy. It's because it just came at a time where people were stuck in these boring office jobs and... Yeah, it sounds like you're saying the same thing about Office Space, but in the United States. Yeah, it definitely maintains a a real cult following. As I said, I mean, I think it does capture something about working in a a soulless office job. Even though it's sort of over 20 years old, there's still stuff in there that people are going to see right now. I guess there's probably parts of Office Space I like more than like the whole film. I think if you like that kind of observational sense of humour, I think that's really the, the strongest parts of Office Space and it's like worth seeking out. There's a kind of interesting role of kind of 90s hip-hop in it, which populates the film. It was starting to become a time where hip-hop was starting to become more mainstream and that, that there were a lot of people that might seem like buttoned down and squares that were actually listening to hip-hop and I think that the film kind of channels that energy in in some of the more iconic scenes. And I Care A Lot is available through an Amazon Prime subscription. Our next film that we're going to review is Willy's Wonderland, starring Nicolas Cage, and it's available to rent uh, through Amazon Prime and through all good VOD platforms. Uh, Sam's going to tell you the plot. Nicholas Cage plays a drifter whose car breaks down in a remote town. He is unable to pay the mechanic to fix his vehicle, so has to do a night of cleaning in Willy's Wonderland, a now closed kids' party venue. Unbeknownst to him, this venue is cursed. The animatronic mascots who still inhabit Willy's Wonderland are possessed by the ghosts of a satanic cult who murdered families before their demise. Can he survive the night and rid the town of this evil? Or, as a haiku, temping to fix car. Birthday mascots made lethal. At least it's not bees! Uh, excellent reference to an equally glorious Nicholas Cage <laughs> Well, I mean, what? In the haiku, you've got to mention it's a Nicholas Cage film, because, I mean, I think that's part of the, the USP of this. Do you like The Wicker Man? Yeah, I was. <laughs> you know, actually, I was just. I was trying to remember what the title of it was, which, which maybe means that my brain has tried to get me to forget that film, because it's. Absolutely diabolical. It, but, but brilliantly terrible, kind of in its own way. I feel like we're ruining the, the the reference in the haiku by highlighting the fact that it's the Wicker Man. We should have kind of just left it, but it's done now. It's done now. It's out the it's out the cage. <laughs> uh, and here's a clip. Let's get the hell out of here. I can't stand to hear a grown man scream. This place has a dark history. I know the bullshit story they told you. It's a lie. You're here to be a human sacrifice. Have you been listening to a word I've been saying? I was really looking forward to this. I love the kind of culty vibe, possibly 80s kind of vibe that it was that it was giving off. Uh, I loved the premise. It sounded like a laugh. This was a massive disappointment on almost every level. I, I feel really let down by Willy's Wonderland. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely part of the cult of Cage. The cult of Cage are films that just feel like they're made 
to please Nicolas Cage fans. They want Nicolas Cage to say something stupid. They want him to get in ridiculous action scenes. And they want just a complete chaotic performance, which Nicolas Cage often gives you. Um, or, you know, on the surface, that's that's kind of what he, he gives you. And, yeah, I mean, the character that he plays maybe isn't quite suited to his talents. That's the first problem, yeah, I think. Like... Um, he's a completely silent protagonist, which isn't great because you, you want Cage to be able to let loose. And w- while I think he say something hilarious, say something hilarious, exactly. Like I think while he's he's quite suited, he's he is still quite entertaining to a certain extent as like Nicolas Cage just doing nothing, just like scowling and then engaging in like extreme violence. Because that's the other the other part of the film is the fact that these mascots try to scare him and then try to kill him, but he just dispatches them with violent ease. And that's kind of the recurring thing that, that kind of keeps happening in the film. He does kind of play to the audience by by giving a good scowl and then, you know, destroying these monsters. But playing a badass. Playing a badass. But, um, yeah, it would have been better if he could have speak and say some kind of cageisms. but that's not really my biggest uh, problem with the film. But it's just everything around the film as well. Everything around the film apart yeah. from Cage. It's the way it's technically made. It's the way that it uses its budget. And it's the other characters in the film. So you've also got uh, another group of um, kids from the town, sort of teenagers, who are trying to burn Willy's Wonderland down because, yeah, it's it's causing havoc and you kind of get these innocent people coming through the town ending up having to do this, this cleaning of Willy's Wonderland. It's kind of all part of a scam. That's created yeah. by the town elders. I think you'd say people in authority, people like yeah. the police, and these teenagers. Yeah, are trying to uh, yeah trying to destroy it so it stops innocent people from dying. And that was like a, a trick they missed, really, because there's no chemistry and there's no charisma between that group of teenagers. And also, they're just kind of like bad stereotypes. Yeah, so- a film like this tries to play on stereotype these kind of films can be complicated about why they work or why they don't but uh in this case uh i think these these kind of extra characters the kids from the town maybe like they're stereotypes and they're trying to be like tongue-in-cheek about it but it doesn't come off as that it just comes off as really like wooden and bad writing yeah bad writing and plastic you know i think the key here is that the they all seem like a bit unsure of what the tone is really supposed to be, about how crazy they take it. And I think that's a problem because I think the key to being in a like a, a horror comedy like this is playing it as straight as you can. Uh, yeah. That's the that's the best way to do it. You, the more genuine you are, the more you do it like a proper horror, uh, the more you'll capture the horror elements, but more importantly, the more that you'll be funny. And they, they don't seem to get this at all. They're just c- completely mismatched and have no really idea where to, how to where to put themselves no I mean I think the worst part is the action scenes they're Ugh. just so badly choreographed I mean so the setup is Nicolas yeah. Cage fighting these animatronic mascots yeah that should be the best part of the film the oh part that's just yeah really, it should really, be great the part that's really really entertaining and what they do is because they know that it probably doesn't look very good or whatever visual effects they've decided to use whether that's in while they've been filming or whether that's in post-production it just doesn't really have any impact. So what they do is they do these really quick cutaways to him fighting these, yeah, these characters or these these strange mascots. Yeah. You don't really see any of the action because, yeah, it just doesn't really feel like they've worked out how to represent those or show those characters very, very well. It's really slow and really clunky whenever there is kind of action. That's not great for this concept. You can see, like, they've got some good ideas for some of the, the fight sequences, but they're just... I just don't think they really know how to execute them or that they don't really have the money to execute it properly. I, I think the, the main problem is you, you can just really see see the strings here. The, the characters and the special effects look really crappy, but not in a charming way, not in like a, a kitsch way. In the sense that like like Willie and, and the other characters, the other like animatronic characters... I think there's seven other mascots. Seven other mascots. They're really poorly designed. None of them are that creepy or horrifying um and a lot of them end up getting animated with really bad cgi and like bargain basement sound design um and it just really lets them down it it, it means that they completely lose all the effect they're supposed to have 
the film really collapses underneath the execution. Like it's a it's a great it's a great concept, but they they can't. Is, find is it. it a great concept, or is it again like as I as I kind of said at the beginning? It's like oh, we've got Nicolas Cage. Let's let's get him doing something crazy and ridiculous. Let's invent this kind of the the most ridiculous and over the top story that we can. And okay, fine if you want to do that, but you know if you maybe you could do something like a little bit better, or you could execute like a better idea, invent something where. You kind of be able to use horror and comedy in the same sort of way. I, just, I think a story like this. A a I think the story like this could have, 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 have lent itself quite well to that horror comedy thing and to that like culty uh, kind of like r- r- like retro like psychedelic eighties horror thing that 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 some people are very good at doing. Um, and Nicolas Cage has been involved in uh, in recent years. Uh, I think it could have. I could have worked on a lot of different levels. Uh, I think it could have been funny. I think that idea of these uh, kids' characters that end up actually being really creepy and, and horrifying uh, is quite good. And I think that the idea of a um, someone coming in and instead of being chased by these monsters, actually fighting back could have been really fun and really entertaining. But it just wasn't because I just don't think they know how to do it they either couldn't afford or didn't have a good idea or after the concept like well how do we actually do this the designs are lame the special effects look rubbish there's like there's still like a bit of gore you know the spurting of blood and this kind of thing but everything ends up looking really tacky everything feels like quite lackluster and that's the the feeling you get coming out this film and that is the exact opposite of what you want you want to come out of this having had a real like fun time you know the appeal of cult stuff is that there's a kind of like a base reaction that this is really like gory or this is really scary or this is really sexy or this is like really twisted and like this is this is this is like a wild ride this is like a this, this is this is a lot of fun there's yeah. something that really clicks and there's actually a lot of it, it's, it's not impulsive there's a lot of like technical stuff that, that goes on behind doing that and I just don't think they knew how to do that so you've actually got this I think quite a good idea that's just executed so badly that it just doesn't work on any level it's a massive letdown yeah let's throw a few crazy ideas at the wall and see what sticks that's the method of filmmaking that they went along with and, and nothing does stick no it doesn't uh, you seem to think it's it kind of it, there's, there's always something cynical about it like there was no like love there was no passion here yeah absolutely I mean in general I'm not a fan of films that are trying to be cult so cult can have multiple meanings but yeah. I guess I'm trying to define cult films as having a kitsch value or movies that are embraced in an ironic or subverted way but yeah what happens is sort of, filmmakers make a cult film but by design not by accident which takes away some of the spirit so like a film I would give an example is Snakes on a Plane with Samuel L. Jackson which I just loathe because what happened is like while Snakes on a Plane was getting made he got this huge following online and the filmmakers started putting some of the lines created by the fans into the script while they were making it oh, and so all the right. finished product is this like awful sterile just knowing really dry film that he's like desperate to be adored because of how outlandish it is it's like oh wow we've got Samuel L. Jackson saying I've had it with these motherfucking snakes on this motherfucking plane they never really felt that funny in the end and it's begging to be liked and it just feels like a film made by committee and not the organic experience that like a lot of great cult films are and yeah I posit it's, that's the way that Woody's Wonderland is, is made as two I, I loved the vibe of this I, I really loved the idea I was really excited to see this but it's just ropey CGI no charm no kitsch value, a lot of really missed opportunities and people completely misunderstanding how you execute a film like this. I, I can't say this enough, like, Willy's Wonderland just has, has really let me down. I, I'm, not, I'm not like a massive part of the, the cult of Cage, but I'm hoping for better, uh, wacky Nicolas Cage films in the future. And I, I generally like films with this kind of vibe, and I hope to see more of them in the future. A bit better done. He's not trapped in here with them. They're trapped in here with him. It's birthday time. I enjoy a man a few words. If you like Woody's Wonderland, then an excellent companion piece would be Mandy from 2018. 
I'm willing to hedge my bets and suggest that you've watched Willy's Wonderland because of Nicolas Cage. You want to see him unravel in a horror film, get loose and fast with something demonic, and say some iconic one-liners that only he can pull off. Mandy is that type of film, but there's a lot more craft, vision, and substance to it than meets the eye. Nicolas Cage plays Red, who lives a quiet life with Mandy, played by Andrea Riseborough. After Mandy walks home one day from her job as a cashier, a van filled with a cult called Children of the New Dawn drives by. The leader of the cult is fixated by Mandy and demands that his followers kidnap her with the help of the Black Skulls. The Black Skulls are a biker gang who evolved into orc-like creatures due to their consumption of a potent form of LSD that they drink by the jar load. It's up to Red to battle these beasts and the cult itself. So what are you going to do with that man? I'm going hunting. So what you hunting? It's crazy evil! So, in love, I'll show you love. While this definitely ticks the boxes for a Nicolas Cage extravaganza, it's worth warning that Willy's Wonderland is definitely made within the realms of the horror comedy, and Mandy is made within the realms of a psychedelic violent fever dream. As long as you go into it prepared, then you will have fun, as the director Panos Cosmatos creates a world that's inspired by 1980s video nasties, and adult gothic fantasy novels. This description might sound like another attempt to shock rather than to push the boundaries of the genre, but there is enough originality and weird beauty over the running time to make the film stand out. There aren't many actors that can do what Nicolas Cage does. Red is introduced as a vulnerable and loyal man, but over the course of the film you see him transform. He leaves his soul in every scene, whether he's caring for Mandy or dueling with a malformed freak of nature. You of course get that in Willy's Wonderland, with Cage fighting possessed mascots, but the action scenes in Mandy are more palpable and gruesome. This is a film I put into the cult of Cage bracket, but with the caveat being this is made with more care and attention and from a filmmaker who will hopefully make more horror films of this distinction. I think you really nailed it there. Um, I, I absolutely love Mandy. I, I did actually watch Mandy with a couple of the like cult of cages and they didn't really get on with it very well. The cult of cages. Yeah, is cult of cages. Cage heads? Cage, oh, Cagists? Cagists, I don't know. There's, there's probably something they didn't get. They didn't get on with it. I love the psychedelic, trippy nightmare of it. I love the care and attention that's gone in to making this all this these beautiful acidy colours like coming out at you. Um, the, the the different places, weird, twisted fantasies it takes you. Some are more like heady and like visual and others are are going for that kind of visceral goriness of two people having a chainsaw fight and this kind of thing. Like it's absolutely glorious. It's such like a a weird and wonderful ride. Like it's it's everything that Willy's Wonderland like should have been. Like I know they both have cage in them, but like cage or like 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 cage notwithstanding, I mean cage does bring his own kind of energy to Mandy, which is really, really great. I can't get over enough how it's just the, the just the feel and the energy of this film is something that I just really, really enjoyed because it's so imaginative, so so dark, so twisted, and so much fucking fun. Yeah, it's like a film from another dimension. It's a, Exactly, it's a film from another dimension. Uh, and that's exactly it. You said if you like this, but I really would encourage people, as, as you probably, uh, from, my, from my glowing... Uh, words about the film be unsurprised about that (laughs) if you do watch Willy's Wonderland or even if you don't watch Willy's Wonderland if you just watch the trailer after you do do that if you're going to sit down and watch something just watch Mandy because it's so much more worth your time there's so much more like imagination and craft and like a a real vision that goes into this this film and that's what I think you need to, to look for like there are hilarious moments in it you can you can watch it and laugh if you want but that's the, the thing is, is that someone has designed I'm not, this I'm not sure about that I, <laughs> I think you need to be emotionally and mentally prepared to go into Mandy I think it's quite neat well, it's quite intense oh yeah I think like with Willy's Wonderland I think you can sort of throw it on quite late night maybe have a bit of a laugh I mean and just not really focus on it I think Mandy's a film that it's re- it is really entertaining yeah but it goes deep it really does. I think you know. I mean, and that's you know, that is the difference between a horror comedy and like a pure horror film. It's kind of like a. It's much more gory. I think Mandy. It's almost more of a fantasy than anything else. The the design and the visual effects make yeah. it yeah make it more of like a, a dreamscape. 
in a way. It's just really, really. It odd. is. It's a dream. A dreamscape is a really good way of of describing it. Yeah, the the creatures that like the 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 biker creatures, the black skulls, the black skulls are just amazing. There's a middle sequence. There's a middle sequence with the black skulls where Nick Cage has to take on the black skulls. And I think it's one of my favourite sequences in horror films. I just think it's so yeah. well done in terms of the action. It leaves you with such dread, and the action is really, really good. I actually don't think the final third of Mandy is, is, is that good. I think it could have been executed a little bit better, but that's I don't want to take anything too away from it, because essentially, Willy's Wonderland is like a student film. It just feels like, oh, this is just so a bit, a bit half-arsed and a bit done for the cut-off cage. But Mandy feels like a, a horror film made by a director who's done... A surfeit of of horror films. He's you know an expert in the genre, and you know he's this is kind of like his his twenty fifth or something like that. And actually, this is only the director's second horror yeah. film, yeah. and his first film in about eight or nine years. Yeah, it's just an incredible achievement, really. I, I agree with you. the The ending is the the last third of Mandy is look, the whole film's weird, like a real hallucinogenic trip. You just have to kind of go with it, and that's kind of the joy of it. And and I will say this. So, Willy's Wonderland was approximately made for five million US dollars. Mandy was made for six. What? So, Mandy was no ma- way. So, Mandy was made for a million dollars more. It, it looks like it's made for a much bigger budget. That just shows you the difference in in how you can use your budget and still make your film look really, really exceptional, and then completely waste your budget on stupid ideas and bad framing decisions. I mean, a million dollars probably sounds a lot to, to someone on the street. Yeah, if you gave someone course, a million yeah. dollars. But in terms Motion. of movie making, a million dollars is, is it will not make loads of difference to your film if you've got a million more or a million less. Like, uh, well, I, I suppose it, it can depend, but I think in and this these are case... Approximations, these, so. these are approximations. But I think in this case, it, it shouldn't have made that much uh, difference. Wow. Um, Mandy looks like it was made for $50 million. Um, it cost six million. Willy's Wonderland cost five million. Looks like it was made for about five pounds. <laughs> Mandy is quite a divisive film. I think some people will love that intense hallucinogenic dreamscape that it creates, as 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 it's been, as we've described. Um, other people will just find it like repulsive. Repulsive. I think people will be repulsed by that. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes the, the great horror films do that. Yeah. And I think Mandy is one of the great horror films. I think that was one of the the best descriptions of Mandy I've ever heard. I think you, you uh, absolutely. Yeah. I think you absolutely nailed it. That was amazing. Really, yeah. Amazing watch, description. I look, look, think about watching it again. And if you didn't like this, I think you should watch 1987's Evil Dead Two. If you want something culty, something that runs the line perfectly between horror and comedy, then nothing quite beats the Citizen Kane of genre-splicing viscera that is Evil Dead 2. Just as a quick note, no, you don't need to watch Evil Dead 1 to watch Evil Dead 2. For legal reasons, they just retold a, a shorter version of Evil Dead 1 in like the first 10 minutes of Evil Dead 2. So, Ash is your average, large-chinned young American trying to have a romantic getaway with his girlfriend in a cabin in the woods. Unfortunately, it doesn't quite go to plan when a demonic evil is accidentally unleashed that can possess and mutate people, plants, and the world around them into unholy creatures that like to sadistically torment and murder their victims. It's up to Ash and a handful of allies to send this evil dead back where it came from, by spell, by shotgun, or by chainsaw. Are you listening to me? Do you hear what I'm saying? I'm all right! Okay. Maybe you are. But for how long? If we're going to beat this thing, we need those pages. Then let's head down into that cellar and carve ourselves a witch. Willy's Wonderland fails in a lot of areas that Evil Dead mastered back over 30 years ago. Whereas Willy and co. look cheap and unimaginative, the creatures in Evil Dead 2 are iconic. The twisted, rotting bodies, hellish, squealing voices, and inhuman white eyes of the Deadites look great, and the rest of the effects, of course, look incredible. Blood gushes and eyeballs pop in endlessly fun and inventive moments of gore. But the real difference between what Willy's Wonderland attempts and Evil Dead 2 achieves is that line between horror and comedy. Evil Dead 2 understands horror in that it creates creepy effects, monstrous creatures, and more than a few shocks, 
But there's as much of an inspiration here from Bugs Bunny as there is Stephen King. There's a lot of physical slapstick, and it doesn't clash with the horror at all. Far from it. The horror is real, but it just has a sense of humour. It's not a satire, it's not a parody. It loves horror, it just chooses to express that love through moments that are both horrifying and hilarious. Ash's resurrected girlfriend dancing a twisted ballet with her severed head as a prop is creepy as her decomposing body moves with unholy fluidity, but then it's also ridiculous, over-the-top, cartoonish and grotesque. It might seem unfair to compare these two, but Willy's Wonderland is going for something culty, something instinctively funny, shocking and entertaining, and, and perhaps most distinctively about the cult label, something that lasts the test of time. Comedy like this and the spirit behind it are rarer and rarer, and it would do everyone good to remind themselves that cinema can go to these places if crafted well. Something more splatty, something more scary, something more groovy. Evil Dead 2, except no substitutes. Yeah, I guess Evil Dead 2 is more of a pure sort of horror comedy in a way, because there's no cut-off cage around it. It's just Sam Raimi, who obviously has made The Evil Dead... He gets more money to make Evil Dead 2, and yeah, he produces this just smorgasbord of <laughs> gore, horror, comedy, you know. Slapstick. Slapstick, yeah. yeah. He just. A horror film that, yeah, is, is a staple of the genre. I watched it again recently after, after watching, like, Willy's Wonderland, and there are some people that are absolutely obsessed with it, but you can see why people are obsessed with it, because it is still so brilliant, so much fun. To watch like it is just a an absolute classic even though it sounds really really silly there's some just amazing filmmaking going on there that that makes it so much fun you, you can go a lot of different ways with evil dead too i think uh, and i think that's also part of its cult appeal and that you can be quite academic about it and really kind of go like wow this this is really working why is this working so well or you can just completely like switch off and just like go with it and just be like this is just working i don't care how i win i want to see someone with a chainsaw for a hand and a double barrel shotgun in the other dispatch evil bruce campbell actually is someone that that kind of i think typifies this 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 film and he plays ash he's the actor that plays ash and he he's brilliant because he's a very beautiful man but with he, a massive chin with a massive chin but he also but the way that he kind of animates his face and does this these like comedy bits it's almost as if he is like like a looney tunes caricature of what a hollywood movie star is and there's something so brilliant about it all the supporting cast like uh, I think everyone knows exactly what they're in, but everyone plays it like really, really straight. But then that's the best way to do it because then, you know, it becomes um, even funnier in, in these different bits. Yeah, I think as well, obviously, you get Nicolas Cage's character in which is one who doesn't speak. Yeah. Which I guess it. You lose something when you're not able to have your main character say anything. I mean, unless you're going to make him extremely cool or edgy, which. They don't really do in Willy's Wonderland, but you don't really want them to do that. You, yeah. you want you want to have them. If you're doing something like Willy's, I mean, I can but see the, why they've done it. But that comparison with 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 Ash in, yeah. in the Evil Dead, there's so many good one-liners in there. Yeah, he's exactly. Like the king. I mean, Bruce Campbell is the king of the one-liner, <laughs> and that's just like, yeah another reason why. Yeah, if you if you thought ah oh, this is like such a disappointment, Willy's Wonderland. Go watch a film where yeah the the main protagonist can drop an amazing piece of dialogue. I kind of also picked this a little bit as if you're listening to this and you're like, I don't like these kind of films at all. The idea that you are excited about going seeing something this ridiculous, I I don't understand it at all. I can't understand it. Like, I, I'm not promising you that Evil Dead Two will change your mind. Um, I would consider you a massive stick in the mud if you did watch Evil Dead 2 and you didn't have a good time. Like I said, like Evil Dead 2 is kind of the... is the Citizen Kane, it's the godfather of, of horror comedy. I think if you want something really unique, really twisted, something where you, you generally can watch it and go, this is really creepy, but this is really funny at the same time. Something that so perfectly does that. Um, and, also, and ultimately, something culty, something that stood the test of time, that people are obsessed with, that's, that's shocky and, and silly and, and, and weird, but like a, an amazing like visual treat. Like Evil Dead 2 is, is just amazing. Like it's, it's, such a, it's such a good time. Yeah, 
and the way it's influenced so many directors over the years um, is, 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 is a sign of a film that um, yeah it can teach you about filmmaking but but it's also just an absolute classic genre piece. It is. Well, yeah, and it, but it's a, it's a classic genre piece in the fact that it is so distinctively these two genres. You do probably see it more in in later viewings. There's a lot of like quite strong horror elements here, but it's also so hilarious and, 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 and over the top. You couldn't put that marker in one or the other. And that's what's like amazing about it as a as a genre piece and I mean that's kind of the basis of the cult of Cage anyway uh, yeah there's so much gore in it that after you've watched the film it feels like you're covered in blood (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much for listening to Films Are Better Than People be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to us on right now so you never miss an episode we're on Spotify iTunes Google Podcasts and SoundCloud and don't forget to come follow us on Twitter at Films Are Better and like us on Facebook.com forward slash Films Are Better